will, uh, in a sense, uh, leap off the page. Before I read Zechariah 10, I was struck this morning by some devotional thoughts of uh, William Gurnall, who uh, was 16, 16 to 1679. Uh, my experience in uh, retail has uh, brought me to ask the question and determine the question, uh, do you have your receipt? Uh, there is actually uh, there is actually an app called Fetch, where you scan your receipts and earn points for scanning receipts. And uh, I don't know what these points do, but it's our day and age, isn't it, where we would just about for anything we would say there's an app for that. Uh, but uh, Gurnall says, be careful to keep the old receipts which you have from God for the pardon of your sins. Be careful to keep the old receipts which you have from God for the pardon of your sins. There's no app for that, brothers and sisters, but there's a book for that. Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. We'll read the chapter. We'll see in this varied chapter God's blessing on his people. Uh, uh, various things against those who would teach falsehood. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Zechariah, Ask rain from Yahweh at that time of the late rain, Yahweh who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, the plant in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak wickedness, and the diviners behold false visions, and speak worthless dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore people journey like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will visit punishment upon the male goats. For Yahweh of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his splendid horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, from them every good taskmaster, all of them together. And they will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets of battle, and they will battle for Yahweh will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. I will make the house of Judah mighty, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will cause them to return, because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am Yahweh their God, and I will answer them. And Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in Yahweh. I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. And I will sow them among the peoples, and they will remember me in far countries. And they and their children will live and turn back. Then I will cause them to return from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And they will pass through the sea of distress and will strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will make them mighty in Yahweh and in his name they will walk, declares Yahweh. Uh, what uh, powerful words. 
We'll look at uh, chapter 10 under uh, three headings. Uh, verse 1, depend on Yahweh in prayer. Uh, verses 2 through 3a, shun idols and false shepherds. Uh, and then uh, the end of verse 3 uh, through 12, uh, the blessings uh, on Yahweh's people, blessings on Yahweh's people and, and the defeat uh, of uh, enemies. Uh, so the first heading, uh, the first heading is, should we check on him? Jack, where are you going? I thought I was going to the uh, new members class. New members class? We haven't. Yeah. We're not going to start it this week, sir. Oh, That's my fault. I talked to him about it yesterday. Okay. That's what we need. Somebody who can we can hold accountable. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, uh, depend on Yahweh in, in prayer. Uh, there's a proper posture for anticipated blessing. We, we looked at chapter 9, verse 17. Uh, what goodness and what beauty will be theirs, grain will make the choice men, and, and there will be this flourishing. But the next thing he says is, you've got to pray. Where, where does this flourishing come from? Uh, th that is the question. Yahweh is very active, but we must pray. He promised blessings, and in other places, but people have to pray. Without prayer, uh, their lives and ours become uh, merely complacent, don't they? Complacent and uh, presumptuous. Oh, God's going to work. Things are going to happen. I don't need to get all uh, upset about this. Uh, 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 Phillips uh, narrows it down. He says, we must humbly appeal to the one who is not bound or limited as we are. Uh, that's the point. Who is able to ensure all our needs? Who is greater than every power in the universe? Notice what he says, prayer is an appeal to God for our needs and a confession of our weakness, our dependence, and our trust in him. He, he piles those things up. Prayer says that he is God and there's no other. Where's the blessing going to come from? Oh, God's going to give it. But how does it come? When people are humbly on their knees, he says. There's always a danger of self-reliance. The Jewish people in this time and in Jesus' time, what did they say? Oh, we've never been in bondage to anybody. We're children of Abraham. We have Moses. We have this self-confidence. Uh, I know somebody who has that attitude. I got this. Don't worry. I got this. No, you don't. You don't have anything unless God has given it to you. The rain is a picture of temporal and spiritual blessing. It's a free thing from God, but it's obtained by prayer. Moore brings it out in the church. It is this fact that makes the spirit of prayer in the church an index of her piety. What are our prayer meetings like? That's an index of the church's piety. How is our church walking with God? Corporately, he's saying. It's an index of my piety if I'm praying or not praying. But what about the church? Do we gather humbly? Is it, a, is it an open confession that we can't do anything? It's a, 
index of the church's piety and of the spiritual blessings she may expect from God. That's what we're expecting. When the church pours out in fullness of prayer, God will pour out the fullness of his spirit. It's the only way to get it. You ask in prayer and you receive these answers. In the covenant promises that we looked back at almost two years ago, God said, if you obey, I'll send what? the early and the latter rain. I'll send that. If you disobey, I'm not going to send it. Uh, the early rain was in the fall. The latter rain was in the spring. It was a bracket of rain. You needed both the rains. I don't want to go into, into that right now. But there was always encouragement to pray for these things. And, and notice uh, verse 1. God makes the storm clouds. Who... Who made all those clouds that are out there this morning? What a fascinating sky it was. Look, there's blue, right? We're all like, blue, it is, the sky's blue. Look at that. And, and, and right as a backdrop of those, there was those gray clouds and they're dark and this, and you, and you see the whole thing. Who made it? God made it. He produced every cloud. He formed all the vapor, all the shifting that they, they do as they travel across the, uh, across the sky. God made it. We should pray for it and not take it for granted. Then the second point, shun idols and false shepherds. Uh, these idols, uh, the teraphim, it's uh, translated in, in some, the, the ESV uh, uh, interprets what they are. They were household gods. So they were small images or cult objects that uh, you kept at home. Uh, you remember in Genesis 31, uh, 19, uh, Jacob and Esau are going to meet after years being apart. Well, no, I'm ahead of myself. Laban pursues uh, Jacob, and uh, he says, Who stole my idols? Oh, Rachel had them. They were under her, her, uh, her seat. So there's some superstition, isn't there? There's not a complete trust in, in Yahweh. Well, before, before we leave here, and never come back. I'm going to grab these idols. We might need them. That's idolatry. And uh, of course, idolatry is backed up uh, by another good quality. That's lying. Oh, I can't get down from the horse. It's, uh, it's with me like the way of, of women. Oh, no, it isn't. Ezekiel 21, 21, the king of Babylon, he shakes arrows. He asks of his household gods, the teraphim, and he looks at the liver. They would cut animals open and, and look at the liver, whatever some animal's liver could say. You, you could see God saying, you need to pray and not be superstitious. And I want to spend some time here because this is what happened to the, to the Israelites and this is what happens in our day. It's the bizarre sordid story in Judges chapter 17 and 18. And Judges chapter 17 introduces us to a man named Micah. And this man named Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And then he felt bad and he decided to give them back. And uh, what she thinks about that is, is interesting. And the whole, the whole narrative speaks of pragmatism and syncretism. Pragmatism is basically like we look out there, we kind of see what works, and then we try to do it. And syncretism is the blending of creeds together. I'm going to mix religions together. I'm going to mix things together. 
So he gives this money back to her, and she's so happy, she says, I wholly set apart the silver from my hand as holy to the Lord. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. She sets it from her hand as holy to Yahweh for my son to do what? To make a graven image and a molten image. So now will I return them to you. So he takes 200 of the pieces of silver, goes to the silversmith, and makes the idols, and they're sitting there in the house. So... Obviously, you can't have idols without some other stuff. So he decides, I'm going to make a shrine. I'm going to make an ephod, right? The thing that they wore, it was also used to, uh, uh, as a prophet's garment. And he ordains one of his sons as the priest. Pragmatism and syncretism. This is the teraphim. This is the, the, the diviners. This is the evil. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own sight. It tells the wickedness of man, but it also tells us a little bit about what a king should be, as we've seen over and over and over. Bad king, bad people. Good king, he's working on it. Josiah got rid of all those things. Pragmatism. Well, whatever, whatever you want to do. Son, I got good news for you. You're going to be a priest. Well, that, that keeps going. That keeps going until a young Levite travels in the same town. And he comes to Micah's house. And what does Micah say? You're a Levite? Wow. Son, I got news for you. You're not the priest anymore. Now I got a Levite. Now I got somebody who's supposed to be. And he gives them all this stuff. He says, I'm going to pay your salary. You're going to have benefits. You're going to be like a son to me. And the son's standing there like, well, that was fast. Right? The son gets kicked out. Verse 13, Micah says, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Who do they think is doing all this stuff? Whose providence do they think this is? They think the Lord's working in their lives. That is a lie. That's the problem with the Israelites. You should be praying, not, not looking at household gods, not finding uh, uh, false prophets. That's the problem in our day. Some guy has a dream and says, I saw the Lord, and everybody bends over backwards to follow him. All done wrong. All done biblical. But I was led by the Lord. I was led by the Lord. I disobeyed every precept of Scripture, but I was led by the Lord. Everything in the narrative is corrupt idolatry. And then in chapter 18, a group of men called the Danites come and they take the idols and they take the priest. And what happens? They say, isn't it better for you to be over 600 people than only a household? And the guy's like, I got promoted. And off he goes with them. And Micah comes and he says, give me my stuff back. And they say, you're not getting your stuff back. It's your choice. Go home or die right here. But they all think God is leading. The Danites are going to go out to battle. They need somebody to, uh, they need somebody to uh, uh, help them. They need to know that the Lord is going to be with them. And even though they do everything wrong, they think that th this is God's providence. But here is the account by God himself. The teraphim speak wickedness. They utter nonsense. They speak delusion. They speak iniquity or futility. Those are the translations. What do they talk about? 
You got these idols under your, under your saddle. You got them in your house. What do they say? You're an idolater. They speak wickedness. It says you're an idolater. Look at the diviner's actions. They behold false visions. They speak worthless dreams. And they comfort in vain. What comfort are you going to get from a present false, de false prophet who says God's really not that upset with your sins? What comfort are you going to get from a man who says Jesus saw Zacchaeus and there might be original sin, but Jesus told me that God saw original goodness in Zacchaeus? That is a lie. What help are you going to get from somebody who stands before a congregation in Texas thousands of people and says, I don't have the heart to condemn other people. That's a lie. It's false visions. It's worthless dreams. And they comfort in vain. Colossians 2.18. In this person insists on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details about visions. And the visions are elevated above the word of God. Russ was on a boat with a man who said, I don't need pastors and teachers. I get it right from the source. That is a lie. But people tremble in their boots to face somebody and say, you are false. You are a liar. Like all unbiblical false prophets, they claim to be from God. And nobody checks him. The one guy that Justin Peters points out blasphemes over and over. Every Sunday is blasphemy. And nobody says, that's not true. That's a terrible thing to, to, to bring God down to. You gave him advice. The one time he said God needed cheering up. So I prayed until God told me, I feel better now that you cheered me up. That is a lie. But his church is packed. Brothers and sisters, it's pragmatism and syncretism. Don't ever blend the best thing, the word of God. Don't ever blend pure Christianity with something that you think. Amen. Oh, I just want to add this. I want to add this to it. I, I want to find out what works. Well, they found out what works. They all they sing, all they do is sing, and it's so loud people can't even go into the worship till the singing is over. I hear it over and over and over again. Uh, but the word of God, no. Now, we don't, we don't emphasize preaching here. We, we don't tell people they're sinners. That's negative. The one guy says, well, people have, a, they have, enough, they have enough tough difficulties in their lives. I don't, I don't want them to come to church and be de depressed. Well, you don't want them to come to church and be saved either. Yeah. And there's the result right there. Therefore, people journey like Sheep, sheep do not journey by themselves. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. You get a flock of sheep, you don't tell them, okay, guys, you're on your own. But that's what the false prophets did. They made that happen. They made that happen. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. That's the bookend of the picture. Because sheep need somebody to say, no, 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 go over here. Why do they carry these long poles, right? Yeah, there's a little tool to help them. Why do they have dogs? 
Go over here, don't go over there, stay over there. No, 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 sheep, the grass is over here, it's not there by the cliff. Bad shepherds, afflicted because there's no shepherd, there's no protection, safety, there's no guidance or true voice. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Jesus says, my he sheep hear my voice. Stephanie has a dog, and the dog barks like crazy when you approach the house. And I can say, Zeb, Zeb, it's me, and he stops because he knows my voice. He knows an enemy's not coming. He knows a, a voice. The sheep are like that. Oh, that's the shepherd. He takes care of us. That's Jesus. That's my Lord. He takes care of me. I hear his voice and he guides me in the good, good, good place. Amen. Bad shepherds are all over the place. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. The punished, the punished shepherds then in, in verse 3a, uh, we remember Matthew 18, 6. It's actually in all the sim synoptics. This is a chilling picture, isn't it? If you cause somebody to stumble, it would be better if a heavy or a great millstone would be hung around your neck and that you'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. It was one of the things that they couldn't get out of their mind that Jesus said, so they wrote it down. It's better for you to be at the bottom of, a, 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 of the sea and not be able to get out than to cause more people to, to stumble. His anger burns, he says. He's going to visit punishment. And then he uses a picture of male goats. Some of the translations say leaders. Uh, but it's a picture of who they really are. Sheep are leadable. Goats, they're always budding. They're tough. They're stubborn. Come on, goat, come this way. They're like, I'll show you which way we're going. That's what those leaders were. They're goats. They're really goats. They're not Christians. They're not of the truth. And in both testaments and at all times, false teachers will be punished. And our day is a disgrace and shame for what is taught and what goes on and what people call churches. They are really, as Revelation says, synagogues of Satan. They look like one thing, but they're really another. And then the blessing on Yahweh's people and the defeat of the enemies in verse 3b, the second part of verse 3, up to verse 12. And I'll speak of three characteristics first, then we'll look at the characteristics. In, this, uh, in these verses, there's a description of God's people. Then there's Yahweh's actions. There's all I wills and they wills. And because of Yahweh's work, his people will become something. Uh, they will do something and, and they'll be blessed. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And this is going to be the result. We see it over and over again. And then uh, couched in this, couched in this uh, 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 idea is military pictures and details. So first of all, the description of God's people, uh, notice uh, there's some generic terms. Verse 3b, what is it? His flock. There's the problem with being a false teacher, isn't it? You got the sheep scattered, but whose flock are they? You're, you're messing with the true flock of Jesus Christ. You're messing with the true flock of Yahweh. That is dangerous. 
He says they're going to be called mighty men, verse 5. It's the house of Judah and the house of Joseph, verse 6. It's the house of Ephraim, verse 7. Remember, we've seen this, we've seen this over and over. He says, I'm going to get them all. I'm going to get all these houses. Who's the house? It's not just one little house. He's talking about all of them. Everybody who's associated with the Judah. All the people of the house of Joseph. All the people of Ephraim. If you remember Amos, Ephraim was in trouble, wasn't he? Ephraim is joined to idols. What do you do? Let them alone. They will be mighty in Yahweh. Verse 12 was just a beautiful, it's a beautiful capstone. They will be mighty in Yahweh and strong in the Lord. We're exhorted in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So that is uh, the people. And then there's Yahweh's actions, but there's too many to cover. So we just mentioned uh, three samples. In 3b, he says, make them like his splendid horse in battle. I'm going to make them into something. His actions will make the house of Judah mighty. Verse 6, he will save the house of Joseph. And then uh, finally, there's military pictures and details, and that goes from 3b up to the end of verse 5. And it's all caused, notice, by Yahweh of hosts. And it's symbolic because he says, I will make them like. I'll not make them an army. I will make them like something. Uh, he'll make them like a, a majestic steed, a, a, a splendid horse. Uh, and uh, and uh, there really was, uh, there really, the picture is, is, a, is an amazing thing. Proverbs 30, verse 30 one says there's three things that are stately in their march and four, and remember where the, one of the prophets said that, what is stately in its march? A king when his army is, is with him. So we're, it's a military picture. Chapter 9, verse 10, I'll cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. You had to use horses. Proverbs, I mean, Psalm 33, 17, uh, uh, there's, don't put confidence in horses. Uh, it says it's a false hope of salvation. But remember the first vision with the horses. There's no mention in the scriptures of horses until Revelation. So this is a connection of Zechariah and, and Revelation. Revelation horses come all over the place. Four horses and the, the one who is faithful and true in chapter 19 can be seen on a horse. He's seen on a white horse. The horse is significant. In those days, the horse was significant also. Uh, you've probably seen a, a Western where the guy rides up and they say, oh, that's a nice horse you got there. And you could tell right away, right? The, the back of the horse is not like this, okay? It doesn't, right? It didn't come into town doing this, reeling all over the place. The king and, the, and those who were in the army that had horses had good horses, you could look at it and say, that is a good horse. But the general on the battlefield with his army, he wasn't there by himself. God says, I'm going to make you like that, but he was never there by himself. Oh, look, the Israelite king came out to war. How come he's by himself? He was never by himself. Secondly, he's in a position of command. The horse was used as a position of command. You had to be elevated. You had to see what was going on. 
in order to make decisions ab about the battle. And up to the Civil War, literally, you had other people come to you and say, what should we do? Do this and take their horse and go tell people, now do this. Now do this. You didn't have a phone. You didn't have any way of communicating except one person going from the general over to the people and say, now do this. That, that's it. But he's poised also to advance or to retreat. In any case, we, we start to win the battle, the general would advance. Right? You remember there's, there's battles, I believe, with, uh, uh, with Ahab when he's uh, finally killed. It got, so, it got so hot that all the other soldiers are around him. That's when you're losing. You're still the general, but all your enemies are around him. And some guy, who knows what, shoots it, and it goes right in between his armor. It's almost impossible, except that the arrow had God's name on it and Ahab's name on it. So they, it's a picture of the best horse. It's a picture of the general on the battlefield with his army. It's a picture that he's in the position of command. It's mobile. It's here we go. We're going over here. Now we're going over here. And uh, the, the battle of Bull Run is always uh, in my mind when I think of this because that's how Stonewall Jackson got his name. He, he sat on the horse directing the thing and, uh, and the other guy said, look, there stands Jackson as a stone wall. That's what you were supposed to do. At the end of the battle, they found Buckshot in his horse he held his arm up because he got hit with something else so the bleeding would go down instead of out. That's how he was in battle. And God says, I'm going to make you like that. But then also, there's everything necessary to conquer and, and build. Notice, there's a cornerstone or a corner. There's a tent peg, a bow of battle. There's taskmasters or leaders of rulers. And, and uh, it's a picture of a, an encamped army, I believe. It's a picture of this building and this uh, or the church that that can't be stopped you, you have to start with a good corner I never forget the time a, a, a guy told me I need help I need your help as a laborer uh, I have to put in a floor and he measured and and I was surprised you started laying the floor in the middle why do you do that because you go from the corner well, Christ is the cornerstone of his church. See, there's some pictures here that are starting to form. You can see the encamped army with, with all their supplies. It was fascinating to me to, to read that about the guy's command post. He's got a tent. He's got chairs. He's got a desk. He's got a bed. He's got this. He's got that. Well, now we're moving someplace else. And there were men uh, who had to take care of Robert E. Lee or Ulysses S. Grant and go and take, I got the desk, I got his clothes, I got this, I got that. I'm taking care of polishing the sword and making sure he's got ammo and, and fold it all up, put it in wagons and go to the next place. And, and it's, it's like that picture. And then God sums it up and says, all of them together. In the building of the temple, you would say God's going to have show success. They're going to be like conquerors, like an army that's ready. In, in, the, in the thing of the church, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You can't build, Paul says, you can't build on anything else. You can't start to put a floor in the middle unless the corner is straight, unless you know where the middle is. 
and all of them together. Verse 5, they will be as mighty men. You, you think of David's men. Uh, you needed skilled men, but the, those descriptions, right? Well, this guy was that, and this guy was this, and there was a guy who was left-handed, and they could, they could sling a stone to the, you know, whatever it is. And you would say, how do they do that? Well, they were the mighty men. You didn't want to mess with them. And that's what Yahweh is going to make his people like. He's going to be, they're going to be like that. And then verse 5 finishes the complete conquest and the end of the, of the military picture. Tread down the enemy. In battle, Yahweh will be with them. What's going to happen to the opposing armies rider on the, riders on the horses? They'll be put to shame. See? There's the contrast and the defeat of the enemies. So now 6 through 12 is physical and spiritual restoration. We know that they're back from exile and they should be back from spiritual idolatry. They should uh, be uh, cured. Uh, but spiritual issues were uh, and are the real problem. Uh, the greatest consequences are spiritual. Uh, remember that. You can have a promised land all you want, but if you're not righteous before God, your land is worth nothing. The, God could, you know, one, one, one biblical view or one unbiblical view says, oh, we're going to get the land back. We're going to get the temple back. We're going to get all this stuff back. It is of absolutely no value unless you serve the Lord, unless you believe in Christ now. It's of no value at all. It's already been proven in all the prophets that what, what value is the land? Nothing. Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed everything. And before that, there was famines, locusts, hail. I, I withheld the latter rains and the former rains, and it was trashed anyway. And they still said, well, we better, we better go seek Baal on this. Things aren't going good. We better get the teraphim. Things aren't going good. No, no, no. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent and believe. So it's spiritual blessing and, and gathering. And uh, verse 6 uh, sets the bar uh, for the rest and, and clearly shows what the issues are. I'll make the house of Judah mighty and will save the house of Joseph and I will cause them to return because I have had compassion on them. Whose action is it? It's all God's work. And they, will be, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am Yahweh, their God. Imagine that. And I will answer them. There's a little, there's a little hearkening back to verse 1, isn't it? He said, you better pray. And now in verse 6, he says, we're going to have a relationship. You're going to be my God and I'll answer your prayer. Verse, verse 6 is, is packed. I will cause them to return. And remember, since we've been going through the minor prophets, we've seen the whole thing. Here's the, the, the watershed, right? Deuteronomy and Leviticus passages. Don't do these things or these things will happen. And they did everything on the list that they shouldn't have done. And, and they, the northern kingdom was gone and then the southern kingdom was gone. There's nothing left. 
and now they're punished in Babylon 70 years, just like he said to the day they came, came back. But, but it shows. It, it, it shows. I will cause them to return. A physical return and a spiritual return. Ezekiel chapter 36, the new covenant says what? I'm going to take out the heart of stone. Blessed be God that we don't have hearts of stone anymore. Can you imagine that? A heart that actually feels the pulse beat. A heart that can recognize, I, I hear the Savior's voice. I hear Jesus telling me what I need to do. And he says what? I'm going to replace, you're going to get a heart transplant, transplant but then what? I'll cause you to walk in my ways. Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is there anything that should make us tremble more than to know God is at work within us both to will and to do for his good pleasure? God says, you can't do it yourself, but you better have a fearful thing of walking before me because I am going to, to help you to do it. And that's what he's saying here. I will cause them to return. Physically, they're going to come back. Physically, the temple's going to get built. Physically, Jerusalem is going to get built. Someday, physically, people from nation after nation after nation are going to gather there on Pentecost. And they're going to go out again. But they're going to go out with the gospel. They're going to go out as changed men and women. The, Gary's talking about doing acts. I can't wait. Because it says persecution came. And the church grew. And then this came, and God added to that. And then it says, you start the churches, and you appoint elders, and you do this, and you do that. And it's just spreading all over the place. And after the one sermon, it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. That's, that's what's going on. God is causing the church to grow. Jesus Christ says, I know my own, and my own know me. But he also says, other sheep I have, which... How do you know? What does he say? I'm going to bring them and they're going to come. That's what's going to happen. God's going to gather. God's going to restore. It's Yahweh's compassion. As though I had not rejected them. We're reminded of Ephesians 2 that we lived under spiritual death and still in our lives carried out the lust of our flesh. Meanwhile, spiritual forces are upon us doing it and causing us to be children of wrath, even as the rest. And somebody says, free will. I don't think so. You're corrupt, free will, driven by your passions and, and overseen by the devil's activity. That's free. And there's no there's no surprise when the next verse or the next few verses say, but God who is rich in mercy. That's the answer. I will cause them. It'll be as if I'd never rejected them. It'll be as if that young man from North Jersey was never the way he was. It will be as if he never was the blasphemer. It will be as if he never was the fornicator. It will be as if he never was the drunk. And I'm going to turn them into something else. Only God can do that. Amen. The person from North Jersey didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll start reading my Bible. 
God said you better start reading your Bible, otherwise I'm going to punish you in hell for eternity. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets that we've studied focus on the spiritual idolatry and the trust in false prophets and, the sh and all the shepherds. It's not a land problem, it's a heart problem. Only God can fully restore and forgive the people's sins. Psalm 106, verse 8, it talks about the Israelites in the wilderness. It says, yet he saved them for the sake of his name. And people would say that. People saw it, even as they were acting wickedly. They said, what did you do, bring us out here to kill us all? That was a wicked unbelief that said that. But that would look bad, wouldn't it? Yeah, I brought them all out and I had to kill them all. Well, God did tell a generation, you'll never step foot in the, in the land. And he made sure each and every one never did. And then he buttresses it that he says that he might make his might known. Yet he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his might known. That's our God. That's where we're going to end for today. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for these thoughts. We're thankful that you do cause people uh, to walk in your ways, that you do bring people back. And Lord, we would want to be a praying church as we've been exhorted this morning. We would not trust and put our confidence in anything else except prayer. And we would desire, Lord, that you would cause uh, people in our town, people in our nation, people at our jobs to be saved. We pray that we would be light and salt in this crooked and perverse generation. Our Heavenly Father, save those who are under the power of false teachers and bring them to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.